Adrian and I had the, the great opportunity to attend the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London just a few months ago. And uh, some of you know this story, but others of you don't. Uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who spent most of his adult ministry pastoring in that church, had something that he did each week. As he made his way up to the pulpit, he would say over and over again, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. That's my custom as well. And I trust that uh, you would be in prayer uh, today as we open the Word of God and ask Him to do a marvelous work. And so I would ask that you would turn with me to Psalm chapter 19. Psalm chapter 19. Last week we began... Uh, to walk through these important words of Psalm 19, and we learned the fundamental truth that God reveals Himself in the world. That is to say that God reveals Himself in creation. And we made five very important statements as we, we walk through and unpack the first six verses. We said this, first of all, that God's revelation is a public announcement. It's an announcement for all. It's a a declaration of His glory. It's a proclamation of His handiwork. Second, we said that it is a perpetual pronouncement. There's never a time, as you look around all the earth, there's never a time when the glory of God is not being revealed. There's never a time when God is not revealing Himself. Third, we learn that this is a powerful announcement. Verse 3 says, There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. That is, God's self-revelation is so powerful, it is so penetrating, that there is no excuse for any skepticism, there is no excuse for any atheism, there is no excuse for any unbelief. Fourth, we learn that this is a pervasive announcement. That is, the voice of God is not only universal, it is extensive. It goes on and on and on. And then finally, we closed with this comment. That is, it is a personal announcement. The God who reveals himself in creation is an intensely personal God who desires a relationship with the creatures that he has made. Now, theologians refer to this kind of revelation as general revelation. And general revelation, as we learned last week, is simply this. It's God revealing himself to the creatures through the creation. Think about that. General revelation is God's revealing himself to the creatures through the creation. And there are a few implications that we wrestled with. We learned, first of all, and I've already hinted at this, that because of general revelation, you see, we are without excuse. Romans chapter 1 says very clearly that all creatures are without excuse. Paul says it like this, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so then they are without excuse. A second implication we learned of general revelation is that God reveals what He expects of us. He reveals what He expects of us, and we learn that the the chief thing, the thing above all that God expects for us, is that we glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. And then finally, the third implication, and this is where the, the rub lies for all of us, that is that God reveals the basis for morality. How do we know what's right? How do we know what's wrong? Well, God has revealed it to us. This is the important reality of general revelation, that He reveals Himself to you and I through all that He has made, through His creation. Now, general revelation, I might add, while it is sufficient to reveal the existence of God, this much is clear, while it is sufficient to reveal that God exists, it lacks, listen close, it lacks converting power. So think about the the furthest place on the earth that you can even imagine. 
a person in Kenya, a person in the outback, a person in, in China, a person in, in the Czech Republic, anywhere you can imagine, a, a, a sole person in Antarctica, if that's even possible. Imagine that person who, who witnesses all that God has created. What that does is it reveals that God exists. That person is without excuse. However, while it reveals that God exists, it lacks the power to convert that person. This is a very important thing for us to wrestle with because if it is true, and I can assure you that it is, that general revelation lacks converting power, then we have very, something very important that we need to engage in. It's called world missions. If the Word of God does not penetrate the heart of that person in China, if the Word of God does not penetrate the, per, the heart of that person in the Czech Republic or, or Scotland... Or in the outback, in Australia, if the Word of God does not reach that person, the person only has general revelation. Listen close. That person will never be converted. It is literally impossible. Why? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. John MacArthur says the ultimate end of general revelation is that it leaves people without excuse for failing to recognize the nature of their Creator. But he continues, it conveys nothing regarding the way by which a fallen human being might gain access to or secure reconciliation with his Creator to escape judgment. It simply doesn't accomplish that. General revelation tells the creatures, I exist, but it lacks converting power. John Frame continues. He says, sin distorts our understanding of revelation, as Paul teaches in Romans chapter 1. He says, God has given us scripture so that the gospel of Christ will overcome our sin and enable us to use general revelation as God intended. Calvin takes it one step further. Calvin argues that sinners need the spectacles of faith. Now, if I took my glasses off, it would be almost impossible for me to see Daryl at the back of the sanctuary. In fact, I wouldn't see many of you in the front of the sanctuary if I take my glasses off. Without my glasses, I'm virtually useless. Likewise, Calvin says that sinners who have the benefit of general revelation, they must have the spectacles of faith in order to perceive and receive salvation. Guess what the spectacles of faith involve? It involves the Word of God. And that's where we will focus our attention this morning. The title of the message is, God Reveals Himself in the Word. God reveals Himself in the Word. And so with your Bibles open, would you stand with me as we read Psalm chapter 19, beginning in verse 7. The psalmist says it like this, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have the dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, what a delight it is to open your word. 
We thank you that you have not only revealed yourself in creation, but you have revealed yourself in your word. And we recognize today that it is only through the agency of your word. That is where the converting power lies, of course, mediated by the power of your spirit. And so we we come with great anticipation today as we learn more about your word and recognize that this is an inexhaustible fountain before us. God, forgive us for the times when we thought we had it all figured out. Forgive us for the times when we thought that we could pour over the words in Scripture and finally come to a place of complete understanding. We recognize that will not happen in this lifetime. And so wherever we are in the Christian journey, whether we're just getting started or whether we've been walking with Jesus for 30, 40, 50, 60 plus years, may we see the Word of God today as if it were for the first time. May we be filled with joy. May we be filled with delight. Guard our hearts from apathy. Guard our hearts from complacency. Guard our hearts from unbelief. And we ask that you would do a mighty work here in this place today. For it's in your son's worthy name we pray. Amen. Well, I hope you agree with me this morning that as the people of God, we need the word of God. This passage shows us our our utter need, our desperate need for the word of God. And once again, to review Psalm 19, verses 1 to 6, tell us very clearly that God reveals himself in the world. He reveals himself in the world. The rest of the chapter that, Lord willing, we will complete today, tell us this, that God reveals himself also in the Word. That is to say, the Word of God. Now, we've already shared with you the the basics of general revelation. That God reveals himself to the creatures through his creation. Now we want to look at another category, and this is a category that has been coined by theologians, and it's the category that coincides with general revelation, and it's the category of special revelation. That is, God uses special revelation when he reveals himself in greater detail. Here are some of the ways that God reveals himself through special revelation throughout redemptive history. First, through a direct act. Through a direct act. And so, for instance, when Moses stood before the burning bush, that was not general revelation. That was special revelation. That is a a direct act of God. Another way that God reveals himself in the Word is, in terms of special revelation, is through dreams and visions. You walk through the pages of the Old Testament, you see how God would reveal Himself through a dream or through a vision. Another important area of special revelation is that God reveals Himself in His Son. God reveals Himself, as John 1.14 tells us, in the, the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The final area that we we think of and consider when we talk about special revelation is this, and this is where our focus will lie today, is that God reveals himself in the pages of sacred scripture. Now in the passage before us, we will focus exclusively on God's self-revelation in the word of God. David, the psalmist, links his thoughts in verse 7 now to the law of God. Look at it with me. The law of the Lord, that is the law of Yahweh, is perfect. If you focus for a moment on that word law, you will will most likely recognize the, the Hebrew version of that word. It's the word Torah, which is the supreme revelation of God and is probably best understood by the words teaching or instruction. And so you know Psalm chapter 1 very well. It says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the what? His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. As we look at verses 7 to 14 and meditate on these important words, I want you to understand the transforming power of the Word of God. And I must confess, 
that I think many evangelicals have, have completely forgotten about this. They have forgotten about the transforming power of the Word of God. You see, the Word says this, God's Word is described in Psalm 119 as a lamp. It's described as a lamp. I remember Jareen and I took some young people to uh, one of the islands in, in Puget Sound. And uh, the, the camp director came to me on, on the first afternoon we were there and he said, I have a warning for you. He said, if, if I've, I've heard that your youth group loves to play capture the flag. The greatest game ever, right? He said, if you enjoy playing capture with the flag, you need to understand something. That if you wander down to the river without a light, I will guarantee you, you will get lost. I will guarantee you will get lost. And so I, I told the young people, I said, make sure that you take a light. Make sure you take a lantern. Make sure you take a flashlight down to the river. These were before the days of cell phones when you could pull out your phone and shine your flashlight. And I remember we, we played the game, and I think we were going to finish the game at about midnight. And so midnight was the time we would all go back to the house which we were staying, about half a mile from the river. And we got there, and we did the head count, and there was one young man that wasn't there. I didn't think much of it, and so we waited and waited. And I thought for sure he got lost because he didn't bring a light. Well, guess what? He had his light with him. He had just chosen to hide in a particular place and didn't have a watch. So he didn't get lost. He was just a little bit a little bit loony, right? And he forgot what time it was. Suffice it to say, the Word of God is described as a lamp. John Calvin says, unless the Word of God illumines the way, the whole life of men is wrapped in darkness and mist, so they cannot but miserably stray. I think he's nailed it. Without the light of God's Word, we will stray. Without the light of God's Word, we will make decisions that will ruin our lives. And I've seen it in pastoral ministry time after time after time. Well, God's Word is not only described as a lamp, it is described in Jeremiah chapter 23 as a hammer. It's described as a hammer. Joel Beakey, a noted Puritan expert, says it must be added here that one of the most fearful of all mysteries connected with the preaching of the Word is the way in which stubborn sinners may actually be increasingly hardened. Even though the Word of God is used like a hammer. It, it is a total irony, I think you would agree, that while some people, some of you today will leave convicted, some of you will leave con encouraged, some of you will leave challenged, but some of you will leave and your hearts will grow even harder, despite the fact that the Word of God is described as a hammer. And of course the Word of God is, is described as a sword. It's a double-edged sword, the writer of Hebrews chapter 4 says. And so with those things in mind, recognizing the, the forgotten reality of the transforming power of sacred Scripture, I want you to notice three important aspects of the Word of God. First, I want you to see the attributes of the Word. We are very familiar with the attributes of God. God is holy, God is long-suffering, God is love, God is wrath, God is patient, God is kind. But now I want you to, to turn with me, to turn your attention to examine the attributes of the Word. And the attributes of the Word of God are clearly defined in just a few verses. First of all, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect. That's the first thing we learn. The first attribute described in verse 7 is that the law of the Lord is perfect. It comes from a Hebrew word that means without blemish. And I, I must say, it's almost like I'm, I'm beating this drum this morning, and rightly so. I think this is something that many evangelicals may give lip service to, but they have forgotten the importance of the inerrancy of Scripture. The fact that the Word of God is perfect. I like how Wayne Grudem defines inerrancy. He says it like this. The inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. The definition in simple terms just means that the Bible always tells the truth and that it always tells the truth concerning everything it talks about. 
Have you ever run across a person that says, I found a contradiction in Scripture? I'm sure many of you have heard that. The next time someone says that to you, just with a a smile on your face and a warm heart, ask your friend, where? Where? Do you know that they will not be able to show you a contradiction? Why? Because the Word of God is inerrant. There are no blemishes in Scripture. God does not speak, if you will, with a forked tongue. Titus chapter 1 says God cannot lie. Have you ever heard someone say God can do anything? Do you know that's not true? God cannot do anything. Why? One thing we know He can't do is He can't lie. He can't worship another creature. So there are some things that God cannot do. He always lives in accordance with His holy will. He's always always consistent in truth. And our God can only tell the truth. And so denying the inerrancy of Scripture, which I might tell you has become quite in vogue with some evangelicals. Denying the the inerrancy of Scripture is a fool's errand, and it is an utter repudiation of the character of God. I hope I don't come across heavy-handed this morning, but I need to tell you this. If you reject the inerrancy of Scripture, you utterly repudiate the character of God. The inerrancy of Scripture is that important. If I were to ever go to a church and serve as a pastor of that church, and I learned within the the doctrinal statement and the statement of faith that that church either rejected inerrancy or was soft on inerrancy, that would be a church that I could not and would not serve at. That would be a church, I hope you would agree with me, that you could not worship at. Because to say that the Scripture is not inerrant is an utter repudiation of the character of God. It's as if saying, God, you have not told us the truth. Better yet, it's telling God that He is a liar. We need to remember that God's Word is perfect. And I want you to see the effect of the Word in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, and look what it does. It revives the soul. That is, it it turns back men and women. It turns around boys and girls. The Word of God has the power to bring the most recalcitrant sinner to repentance. The Word of God has the power to bring the most hardened sinner to a place of conversion. Probably the greatest example we have in Scripture is a guy by the name of Saul. In Acts chapter 9, we see that this man is breathing threats and murder against the disciples. Three verses later, I love it like when you describe it like that. Three verses later, he heard from heaven, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Can you imagine what Saul's thinking? He was a Christian killer. And then he hears from heaven, why are you persecuting me? And as the story unfolds, as you know, Saul is regenerated. And his heart is radically softened by God's Spirit. And he believes the gospel. Look again at verse 7. The law of the Lord is what? Perfect. Reviving the soul. The second attribute I want you to see in verse 7 is that God's word is trustworthy. Again, in verse 7, right in the middle there, the testimony of the Lord is sure. It is sure. That means to be true, to be reliable, to be faithful. And we see this throughout the pages of God's Word. Psalm 93.5 says, Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Psalm 111, verse 7, The works of His hands are faithful and just. All His precepts are trustworthy. Notice what happens here. Notice the result. The testimony of the Lord is sure. And here's the result. Making wise the simple. That is, the one who clings to this trustworthy word receives wisdom. This is the person who is marked by good judgment. It's the exercise of good judgment. For the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Look at the third attribute that emerges in verse 8. The precepts of the Lord are right. That is, God's word is utterly righteous. 
The Hebrew term here for right means to be in conformity with justice, law, or morality. I love this definition. It means straight, not crooked. It means that which is morally upright. And so the one who lives according to this righteous word learns the secret of true joy. Once again, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Listen to the description the psalmist gives. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. There's a fourth attribute I want you to see also in verse 8, where the psalmist says, The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. That is, God's word is without salt. The Hebrew term translated pure literally means faultless. That is to say, without fault. And so adhering to the commandments of God enlightens the eyes. That is, clinging to the law of God will guide you, it will lead you, it will instruct you, it will encourage you. This is why most young people grow up learning Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths what? Straight. He will make your paths straight. I want you to think for a moment here, by way of summary, through the attributes of the Word of God that have been described by the psalmist. God's Word is perfect. God's Word is trustworthy. God's Word is righteous. God's Word is without fault. And I want you to consider with me, isn't this exactly what we need? You don't need to raise your hands, but I'm kind of curious. How many of you, don't raise your hand. We don't want to embarrass one another. How many of you have been afraid over the last several months or the last year? We have a a nation, a rogue nation called North Korea, shooting missiles willy-nilly. We have other countries... Regimes that are, that are evil nations. We have evil people here in the United States. We have evil people here in Everson. Sometimes we can grow weary and sometimes we even grow fearful. Isn't this exactly what we need? The Word of God that is perfect, trustworthy, righteous, and without fault? Isn't this exactly what we need on a world that is, is on the slippery slope where right is perceived as wrong, and black is perceived as white. Last week we learned this. God is there, and He is not silent. He has not left us to fend for ourselves. He has gifted us now, as we see in verses 7 to 14, with special revelation. God reveals Himself in His Word. To ignore the revelation of God in Scripture is utter foolishness. To ignore the revelation of God in Scripture is to invite eternal disaster. I think we would all agree with those statements. That to ignore the self-revelation of God in Scripture is to invite disaster, even eternal disaster. But here's what I'm convinced of in the church. And I'm more convinced about this than ever. That we may give lip service to... Doctrines like inerrancy, or the infallibility of Scripture, or the sufficiency of Scripture, or the authority of Scripture. In short, we say we love the Word of God. Yet something very different is happening. I went into the freezer, and I took the liberty to to take two chocolate chip cookies. And I must tell you that it was difficult not to just eat them instead of doing this illustration. But I, I took these cookies... And I, and I broke them up. And uh, it, I did something. I, I wasn't really anticipating what would happen, but I, I brought them down here. You guys, Kyle's like, oh, I remember this. And he's like, oh, no, I'm, he's going to make an example of me. No, I won't. But I, I held the cookies out to three or four of the students. Where's Maria? Is Maria still here? She took off. It, most of you all just kind of looked at me like, hmm, hold on. 
I held it out to Maria, and she it was the it was the classic look. She gave me the look like, "You have got to be kidding me!" It was incredible, like cookie crumbs. Are you serious? Yet here's what I think we've done in the church. And I think this might ring true for you in your life. Is we, we have grown accustomed to snacking on God. We've grown accustomed to waking up in the morning and saying, uh, one verse a day keeps the devil away. And we get to lunchtime and we realize, I'm hungry. And I'm talking about spiritual hunger. You see, we've gotten used to snacking on God with phrases like a verse a day keeps the devil away. I'll tell you, if you're reading a verse a day, you're opening yourself up for spiritual disaster. If you are neglecting the word of God, you are you are asking for spiritual disaster. Ken shared earlier that I had challenged the elder council to read the book of Colossians every day for 30 days. And I don't know when when Ken mentioned that during the call to worship, which I appreciate so much, what your thoughts were as he also encouraged you. And I want to challenge you to do it as well. My suspicion is that some of you might have thought, four chapters? Are you kidding me? Four chapters? How many of you read the newspaper in the morning? How much time do we spend on Facebook? The challenge is four chapters in the Word of God, and that's probably not even enough. So let us commit ourselves to studying and reading the Word of God. Can you imagine, as I challenge the elders, what would happen if we spent the next 30 days reading the book of Colossians every day? Trust me, wonderful things will happen. And so I want to give you that challenge. The one who clings to the Word is promised in this passage a revived soul. This will not revive the soul. This will revive the soul. The Word of God promises that the one who clings to the Word of God will receive wisdom and a rejoicing heart, that their eyes will be enlightened. I'm reading a book by Senator Ben Sass, senator in, in Nebraska, and one of the things he focuses on in the book is the, the level of anxiety and joylessness in the most affluent nation that the world has ever seen. And I'd never really put the the correlation together. In the United States of America, we are more affluent than, than anyone in the history of the world. But as we grow in affluence, what happens? Joylessness and anxiety increase all the more. It's an interesting piece of insight. I have never known a person in all of my years in pastoral ministry and all of my years as a Christian who treasured the Word of God and was disappointed that they did it. Think about that. I've never known a person who who delighted in the law of God, who made it their habit to spend time in the Word of God, who was disappointed that they had done so on their deathbed. The psalmist not only focuses on the attributes of the word, he turns his attention to appreciating the word. Look at verses 9 to 11. He appreciates the word. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward." There's two things here we appreciate in these particular verses. First, we appreciate the Word of God for its commitment to truth. And here is another Old Testament affirmation for the inerrancy of Scripture. The fear of the Lord is clean. Joel Beakey says, The Word is clean because it is free from all corruption and from anything that corrupts or defiles. More precisely, God's Word is truth. It is a book of truth with no admixture of falsehood or error. It is likewise a book of righteousness through and through. And so we appreciate the Word. The psalmist appreciates the Word 
because of its commitment to the truth. But secondly, we appreciate the word for its value. And verses 10 and 11 make it very clear. It's so valuable, it is more valuable than fine gold. It is more valuable than than sweet honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Finally, I want to move from the attributes of the word and appreciating the word to applying the word. To applying the word. Two things to highlight here. The word of God now informs our conscience. The Puritan Richard Sibbs liked to say this about the conscience. The conscience is the soul's automatic warning system. I love that definition. The conscience is that that God-given part of us that says, don't do that. Don't think that. Don't look at that. Don't go there. Don't buy that. And those are all negative examples, but the conscience is also positive. The the conscience that God has given us tells us, you should go there. You should tell him that. You should share with that particular person. You should do this. You should do that. The conscience is God-given. And so the Word of God informs our conscience. One writer says, being in the Word exposes the sin of the child of God, pushing him to prayer. Ken, you did a wonderful job illustrating that point this morning. Here's what the Word of God says in 1 Corinthians 13. And here is where I fall short. Here is where adjustment needs to be made. In verse 14, the Word of God here encourages our worship. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the reality, friends, that God reveals himself in his Word. It is the Word of God that Calvin wisely noted that serve as our spectacles of faith, drawing us to salvation and nurturing our Christian growth in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are some important implications. Last week, we looked at implications of general revelation. This week, we see implications of special revelation. I'll give you four, just for starters. First of all, apart from special revelation, we would never know God personally. Think about that. If if there was no Bible... Or if I didn't have a copy of the Bible, I would never know God personally. It was over 25 years ago, I was in a coffee shop. It's owned by a Roman Catholic man. I became good friends with this former Roman Catholic priest who actually met Pope John Paul II at one point in his life. And we had this very fascinating friendship we developed. So one day I was sitting at this coffee shop and a young man, probably a couple years younger than I did, or I was, saw that I was reading the Bible with a buddy. And he wandered over, as is often the case, and cooked up a conversation with us. It turns out he was an unbeliever. He was a militant unbeliever. And he says, I have a challenge for you. And it's the exact opposite challenge that that we are giving you in terms of reading Colossians every day for the next month. He said, I want to challenge you to take your Bible and to put it on the shelf for 30 days. And just see, see how your life goes. Remember, this is an unbelieving, atheistic, militant kind of a person. My response to this brother, this friend rather, was this. That would be spiritual suicide. That would be spiritual suicide. And I would hasten to add that I don't think any of you would ever say, I'm going to consciously stick the Bible on the shelf. But I think in the church, this is happening every day. It's not conscious. Rather, it just sits on our desk and we never open it. But we believe in the authority of Scripture. We believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. We believe in the infallibility of Scripture. We even believe in the perspicuity of Scripture. whoop de doo right? Yes, we believe in all those things, but the, the book needs to, be, it needs to be open. We need to take it off the shelf. We need to take it off our desk. We need to read it. And so, apart from special revelation, we would never know God personally. Secondly, apart from special revelation, we would, we would never be reconciled to God. And that's a logical outflow of the first. Third, apart from special revelation, our eyes would never be open to the truth of the gospel. Never, never, never. 
You say, now wait a minute. What about the person who has never heard, who never receives the scripture? A missionary never gets to them. Guess what's going to happen? They go to hell. This is what creates the urgency for world missions. For apart from special revelations, the nations would stand condemned. Apart from special revelation, the nations stand condemned. I love Psalm chapter 67, verse 4. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Why are, why are we so interested and passionate in world missions at Christ Fellowship? Because apart from special revelation, the nations stand condemned. Now this morning, I want to close our time together with a series of application steps. And these are basic steps, but very important steps. And once again, I'm always, I'm always cognizant of the fact I don't want to be heavy-handed. I think there's a fine line between being heavy-handed and passionate. I hope I land this morning on the passionate side. And here are the points of application. Since God has revealed himself in his word, I want to encourage you. I want to challenge you to, to treasure the word of God. For it is sweeter also than the honey and the drippings from the honeycomb, as we've seen. Since God has revealed himself in his word, I want to encourage you to, to read the word of God. For in reading the word of God, you will draw closer to the great God of the universe. Third, I want to encourage you, since God has revealed himself in the word, please study the word of God. Study New Testament books. Study Old Testament books. Study words. Look at the flow. Look at the syntax. Study systematic theology. Study biblical theology. For as Paul says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Number four. Number four. And I must confess, this, this is one that is more difficult for me than the first three. To treasure the Word of God, to read the Word of God, to study the Word of God. I'm a type A personality. I'm always on the go. I like to be busy. But number four demands that we slow down, and that is we meditate on the Word of God. Joshua chapter 1 says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, I will meditate on your precepts. I will fix my eyes on your ways. Psalm 119.48 says, I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. To meditate means to chew the cud. To chew the cud. As I ride my bike all around Whatcom County, I love to talk to the cows. No, I'm not joking. I'll be cruising along at 20 miles an hour. Hey, man, how's it going? I love to see the... They're chewing the cud. And isn't that what we do as believers? We, we meditate on the Word of God. Additionally, we memorize the Word of God. And we memorize it as a deterrent to sin. For the psalmist says, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up... Your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I want to also encourage you, since God has revealed himself in his word, to proclaim the word of God. To proclaim the word of God. Ken promised that you may hear something from Colossians. Here's the first little bit. If you look with me at Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. Paul the Apostle says, Him we proclaim, that is, Jesus we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now we talk a lot about developing disciples at Christ Fellowship. That's the, that's the overarching goal. The mission is to make more disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ here in this place. But fundamental to discipleship, is this verse in Colossians chapter 1 verse 28 is we desire 
that every boy and every girl and every man and every woman who is a follower of Jesus will be growing in maturity in their Christian walk. Number seven, I want to encourage you to sing the Word of God. Sing it in your car, sing it in your, wherever uh, you're spending time, usually alone, right? I know some families enjoy singing together. My family's probably not a big singing family. But alone, that's another proposition, right? Sing the Word of God. Defend the Word of God, First Peter 3.15 says. And then finally, since God has revealed Himself in His Word, I want to encourage you to, to hear the Word of God. And that's exactly what we're doing this morning. We are hearing the Word of God. There is a 17th century Puritan by the name of Thomas Watson. And he's one of my favorite. He's a clear writer. He's a witty writer. He was a, a totally gospel-saturated writer. And he co-pastored a church in London in the 17th century with a writer that some of you are familiar with, a pastor by the name of Stephen Charnock. Stephen Charnock and Thomas Watson were removed forcibly by the British government from their pulpits along with almost 2,000 other Puritan pastors. Why? Because of their faithfulness to the truth of God's Word. And that's one of the additional reasons I love Thomas Watson, because he was a man who would not deviate from the truth. Here are Thomas Watson's Ten Commandments for hearing the Word of God. And I'll give them to you in rapid succession, and then we will close. He says, first, when you come to God's house to hear His Word... Do not forget to prepare your soul with prayer. And I want to encourage you to do just that. As you wake up, as you rise on Sunday morning, to, to prepare your hearts and ask God, God, what is it that you would have for me today? Not what would you have for my spouse or my friend or, or my buddy, but God, what do you have for me today? Is there a sin that needs confessing? Are there sins that need confessing? Is there an encouragement you have for me? Is there a challenge you have for me? Prepare my heart in the morning before I come to church. Number two, Watson says, come with a holy appetite for the word. He says, a good appetite promotes good digestion. Number three, Watson says, come with a tender, teachable heart. He says, it is foolish to expect a blessing if you come with a hardened worldly-minded heart. You know, some believers do that. They get in their car, and they head to church, and they're ready for all the objections to everything the preacher is going to say. They're ready to criticize. They're ready to condemn. But Watson says, come with a tender, teachable heart. Fourth, he says, be attentive to the word preached. Be attentive to the word preached. Fifth, receive with meekness the engrafted word drawing from James 121. He says, mingle the preached word with faith. And I love this point because this morning we can, we can hear about the word of God and unless we mingle it with faith, we, we walk out with a page of notes that we never look at again. I want to encourage you to mingle the preached word with faith. Additionally, Watson says, strive to retain and pray over what you have heard. Strive to retain and pray over what you have heard. I think one of the greatest ways to do that is at lunchtime to talk about what you heard at church. What are some things you don't understand? Is there a word that needs clarification? Is there a scripture that needs additional clarification? Come together and pray over what you have heard. Then Watson says, practice what you have heard. This is where it gets intensely practical, where we practice what we've heard. Number nine, beg God to accompany His Word with the effectual blessing of the Holy Spirit. Finally, Watson concludes with this admonition. The tenth commandment is familiarize yourself with what you have heard. This would be an example. Some of you say, I'd never heard the categories of general revelation and special revelation. Well, familiarize yourself with those categories. Pick up a good systematic theology. Pick up Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. Pick up Michael Horton's systematic theology or Louis Burkhoff's systematic theology and pour over those words and learn more about those very important concepts. Watson concludes with this challenge. 
He says, under the Spirit's blessing, if these Ten Commandments for hearing the Word of God are conscientiously obeyed, the preached Word will be a transforming power in our lives. If, on the other hand, these directions are ignored and the preached word is not effectual to our salvation, it will be effectual to our condemnation. He says the word will be effectual one way or another. It does not make your hearts better. It will make your chains heavier. Dreadful their case who go loaded with sermons to hell. May we as a church family seriously open up the Word of God and read it and study it and meditate on it and memorize it and proclaim it and sing it and defend it. And may we as God's people stop nibbling on the Word of God. May we as God's people stop snacking on God. Let's go to the all-you-can-eat buffet. Let's go to the all-you-can-eat buffet and let's, let's do it every day. And may the Word of God have a powerful effect on your personal life, on your family life, and on the life of Christ's fellowship. Let's pray together. We thank you, God, for revealing yourself in your Word. God, we have not had time to consider all the other aspects of special revelation But we are so thankful that you are revealed clearly in the pages of sacred scripture. You not only reveal your character, you reveal your expectations, you reveal how lost people can find their way home. And so this morning we affirm the reality of the gospel that you sent your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to to live a life that none of us could ever live and to die a death that all of us deserve And that he was in the ground for three days. And that you raised him miraculously from the grave on that third day. And that he made his way, that he ascended to heaven and is now seated at your right hand. We're so grateful for the promises of the gospel. And I I would ask God if there's anyone here who has never personally trusted in Christ, that today would be the day of salvation. As we've unpacked this section of Scripture, we've seen the importance of general revelation and how it reveals your existence. We've seen the importance of special revelation and how the Word of God has converting power. And I pray that it would do just that on this day, that someone would be miraculously transformed, that they would be converted, that they would leave a totally different person today. And so now as we, as we sing these songs, as we partake of these elements, may our hearts be satisfied with all that God is for us in Christ. It's in your son's worthy name we pray. Amen.